we've kind of touched on this a bit, you know, the distinction between military use of force and, or excuse me, military rules of engagement uh, versus police use of force. But I would, thought maybe that would be a, a topic to tackle next more in depth. Yeah, I mean, so when you talk about like military rules of engagement, they're almost... Or, like, if you want to generalize it, you can't really engage unless you've been engaged. Mm. So I never was around anything that wasn't, you can't shoot unless you're shot at first. That, that was our rule of engagement. So in policing in America, it's as long as you're in fear. And that fear standard is what really gets us a lot when it comes to from all the way from Freddie Gray to Terrence McCutcher, and then how different those murders are, fear and the reasonableness of fear is an underlying concept throughout all of it. I mean, what as a as someone who was a police officer, how often would you say when you're on the street that you are in fear? I mean, I, I, just because of the nature of the work, and especially because of the nature of the work I would think in a context like Baltimore with all the social issues that it has, it seems like you're kind of in a situation where you could reasonably be afraid a lot of the time. Yeah. So reasonable is your problem. Like a lot of our problems with American use of force comes down, especially when it comes to criminal, like when it comes to whether you're employed or not, that's entirely up to a police chief. So no one should buy anything other than that. They're like, oh, we can't do anything. Of course you can. You can fire them. Mm. You just can't, you can't prosecute them. Those are, those are different ballgames. Sure. Uh, so we, we, policing relies on the standard that if you can't prosecute them, then you can't fire them. Well, that's ridiculous. So the fear thing that comes in, it, it's, it's supposed to be whether a reasonable officer should be, it, it, it's reasonable for that, uh, it, whether it's reasonable for a reasonable officer to be in fear. And, what we've done is we've allowed, and you'll see it, we can really see it distinctly in uh, the judge, Barry Williams, for Freddie Gray's, uh, for the murder of Freddie Gray and the case in there, where he takes reasonable to be defined by police officers, mm. which is ridiculous. So if, if, the, if that, that means you are applying reasonableness to majority. And if the majority is unreasonable, then you've defined unreasonable as reasonable and codified it in law. And I think that's a large thing of what we faced when we look at how Freddie Gray was killed. And that wasn't a firearm. And it, 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 it underlined on that fear aspect that everyone is going through. So things should be is whether a civilian that's paying for those services finds it reasonable for that individual to be in fear. And it wouldn't be just one person. That would be a whole bunch of, uh, of people that would say that, a board of some sort. But, like, I never felt fear. And and that's a, a different ballgame. Did that come from the Marine Corps and the way it is there? So in the Marine Corps, you have to accept that you don't get to defend yourself until somebody tries to kill you. Mm. <laughs> you just pretty much have to accept that reality. Yeah. And policing hasn't accepted that reality. So policing... Everyone dies before they do. So, I mean, that's another colloquialism where they say, I'd rather be judged by 12 than carried by 6. They have no problem putting that on a T-shirt. And what that says is that your, your life is patently less important than mine because I'm a cop. I mean, it's interesting I, because 
I mean, just as a civilian, it seems to me that that is also my rule of engagement, right? Like, I don't, I can't go into court and be like, yo, I was just afraid, so I like off this guy, right? I generally, for me to have a justifiable self-defense, uh, defense, uh, that's a terrible sentence, but for me to, to try to defend myself on the basis of self-defense, I generally have to have been engaged or not cause the situation, right? Yes, but where police can really skirt that and, and in situations that will be logical is that they also have the responsibility to protect. Well, they don't have a legal responsibility, but you have the moral responsibility to protect others. Mm-hmm. So they can be in fear of someone else's life and use that as justification. So like the majority, they, they're, uh, you know, humans are myopic, so majority of officers are going to use the myopic excuse that I was in fear and it's probably more uh, reasonable. I, I think I think they are in fear, uh, for the most part. It's just that that fear is unreasonable and something that we have created in the society, and we have it trained out, and we set a system to put people in these situations of fear. So is it scary to go into somebody's house in the middle of the morning to serve a search warrant or a drug uh, warrant of the house? Yeah, that's that, that, that can easily be labeled something that is scary or fearful, but that means we shouldn't make our officers go into that situation constantly being smart enough to know that it puts you in fear, and when you're in fear, you do crazy things. No, absolutely. I mean, you feel like perhaps because of your military background and just sort of the different perspective when it comes to engagement as a result of that background, that fear wasn't necessarily something you dealt with a lot while a police officer but i mean what percentage of the time would you say people or police officers specifically are probably validly afraid in terms of the context they're dealing with on a day-to-day basis well that's the thing is i can't make that judgment because this is a matter of perception to what it is to somebody else so that's the whole problem with even codifying it we're trying to explain and codify uh, a person's emotion and, and that just simply cannot be done. And we can't define where fear is. Where I get confused is I don't know. I, I don't remember being fearful going into the Marine Corps. Mm. Um, so I don't know whether it was the Marine Corps that did that or what could be really scary is if or complex is if there's some kind of genetic issue where certain people have a propensity to not fear things. And that's you'd actually want to be police officers. And then we go down a dark rabbit hole that I don't think society is ready to go down. No, definitely. I mean, I, for any number of reasons, we could see why that would be. But I guess the question then becomes, you know, because you mentioned that, that Judge Barry Williams in determining uh, or in, in, in making his legal judgments about the facts before him in the different trials of officers and the death of Freddie Gray that inevitably the reasonable officer standard was being judged based on what other officers were saying uh, was sort of like the common perspective or the common practice, uh, for example. Um, But it, it kind of raises a particular issue in a place like Baltimore where the police department has a reputation which... I think a lot of the officers, certainly who testified in the William Porter trial, essentially testified to, which is that it's not a super professional agency. I, let me first, before I, I move on from that, 
Is your perception from having been inside that that is fair to say of the police department in Baltimore? Um, so what, what he was doing was defining what is average and what those officers said. While it, it, I mean, I did my master's degree in management because it's completely unprofessional. I wrote that book because the mm. professionalism was ridiculous. And what started it was that our entire ship couldn't legally define what an arrest is. And I would be hard pressed. I would tell you that maybe 5% of all cops could define what an arrest is legally. In Baltimore specifically, or do you think that's broadly true of police agencies? I don't think anything is unique to Baltimore. Mm. I think every single DOJ report all reflects the same things. You're operating in the same system everywhere. So while your levels of its expression may not be there, if you're in a homogenous society of white people and you have a racist uh, against black people police department, well, you're not going to see a lot of results of that in a homogenous society. Mm. So, but wherever you get a heterogeneous society, you see this like crazy. So it, it's there in every agency. I'm not buying it. Nobody's finding an agency. There's not going to be a report on any agency that doesn't find this stuff. If, if, some agency would like to open up their records so I can go test them. I would love to take that opportunity because I assure you it's there with all of them. And that means that when you, you're, you're codifying unreasonable fear to be reasonable. And when you talk about Freddie Gray's, uh, the, the prosecution of his death, then what you really come against and why I think it's a good example is that their fear was against seatbelting him. They are so afraid and the general attitude of risking themselves at all that they were afraid of a 145-pound handcuffed male to put a seatbelt on him. That was the legal argument they want. I mean, you're absolutely right because, I mean, I remember covering the funeral, you know, and I, I walked past, you know, in the processional, you know, in front of the casket while it was, you know, open for viewing prior to the beginning of the ceremony. And it was hard not to notice that, you know, in, in addition to this person being obviously very young, he wasn't like some huge guy who you'd sort of look at and say, well, I could see how someone might feel menaced or threatened by him, right? Like, other than the fact that he was a young black male from a poor black community, and that we tend to sort of associate certain things with that. There was literally nothing about this person that screamed threat, right? Certainly not physically. And then every conversation I've had with people who knew him describes someone who was basically kind of like always happy, always in a good mood, always improving your mood, right? Like not a dangerous person. And there's and there's there's been a few conversations that I've had, you know, because my my experience with people who engage in the street is that they're realists and they say look there are people who are really terrible and if they get you know similar treatment by the police i just i guess they deserved it but freddie wasn't one of those people and so in light of all that is does there come a point where what we are codifying is not this unreasonable thing simply, but we're codifying a lack of professionalism that results in uh, e- events like what happened to Mr. Gray. Our problem with looking at professionalism from them is that they have gone through this entire career 
where they're being told that these things are professional. Mm -hmm. So if they believe that a professional cop wouldn't risk himself seatbelting Freddie Gray in, then they can be codifying in their own minds professionalism because they have accepted that they will define what professionalism is. And an easy way to look at this, no matter what city you're in, when when your mayor or politicians, whoever, is looking for a new chief, they start soliciting all the chief's ideas. And then they pick which chief they want to go with, and that will line up with the mayor's goals. And what they end up doing is picking someone who they've agreed are the rules that you will abide to. And that's always going to end up in that system. So you're being told how you will be policed by whoever is in charge of your jurisdiction, and no one is asking you what that is. So they get to continually define what is professional, what is reasonable, and it should be obvious that if those with power continue to define how their power can be checked, well, they're going to start defining that their power cannot be checked. Yeah, I mean, this raises a lot of interesting issues, particularly in light of the different ways, I guess, our oversight structures are organized with respect to the military and to the police. To your mind, do you feel like, or or let me ask it this way, to your mind, who are the right conversation partners in terms of what the appropriate rules of engagement or use of force rules should be for police agencies? Are should should that be established at the civilian level, not at the police level, or is policing too sort of dangerous and complicated to have civilians establishing those standards? The thing is, policing has allowed the public to think that it's this unique thing that is uh, not a human endeavor. You know, like there are different classes of citizens, and that's ridiculous. We're human. So we're all in the society. We can't. So if we have an entire different set of rules and standards as police, we can't integrate into the communities that we're supposed to be serving because we're putting ourselves as an elite. You know, like like the the, the you know the feudal landlords were never going to sit at a dinner table and get along with serfs. It just yeah. wasn't going to happen. And that's what we're trying like, – like, that's almost what we do if we don't allow the public to define what's reasonable and, and these things. So, like, I think I'm a good example of why that doesn't blow up, right? So here I am. I have submitted myself to the movement, to the black community. I have been vulnerable. I have admitted all my wrongs. Uh, you know, I tried to explain where it is, and I put myself – to the public mercy of people who I have objectively hurt. And people are forgiving, and they understand that, that it was a human thing, and as long as we're human and we come clean about it and we do everything we can to not make those mistakes again, then we, we accept mistakes. What we don't accept is mistakes that are treated like not being mistakes. Mm. You know, because like in the in the military, like say you do any operation, you have a sit rep at the end to go over everything that went wrong, and then you're expected to write up and submit to command 
all your recommendations and how you felt that went wrong and how you could improve it. And then that gets into the database so that people don't make those mistakes again in the future. Well, nothing like that exists in policing, right? So how can you have, we don't, there, there are no actual checks and balances and mm. the checks and balances have to come from what people put into the rules uh, of how a police department will operate. And like individually, I am perfectly comfortable with going out onto the street, making decisions, and, and however they turn out, if I don't have malice in my heart and I try to preserve the life of a citizen, I can't envision a scenario where a group of citizens is going to fire me and send me to prison or anything like that. I mean, you see that. They don't send the cops to prison, so why do you think they're going to come down on them so hard in reality? I just I don't understand why people even have that assumption. It's, it's a claim that's, that's essentially without merit at all. No, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think it's well established that jurors are... Uh... It, it's rare that they go against the police officer's narrative, you know, about whether they were afraid or whether their use of force was objectively reasonable. And so you're absolutely right that this argument that you hear a lot of times, especially from police unions, that civilians cannot provide appropriate oversight in no small part because they might be biased against police. There is no sort of bearing in fact, right? And even, you know, if, if, if the experience of Baltimore City has been any... Uh, Give, can give us any sort of lesson or indication. Most of the people who ended up on our civilian review board were essentially sort of politically appointed police apologists. Like it, I mean, you didn't even have a fair cross-section of the people who might be most affected by potentially abusive policing represented on the board. You had actually a board that ended up politically composed of people that were probably in more situations than not going to find in favor of the police. And so, you know, there's always this sort of like a persecutorial almost paranoia when it comes to the issue of oversight uh, that doesn't seem to be based on anything other than that as long as we buy this narrative that only the police can police themselves, it sort of ensures that their perspective remains codified as objective. Uh, and so there's a lot of discussion about this whole sort of us versus them mentality that some folks feel, and I, I, I would say fairly, that especially when it comes to communities of color, that the police seem to possess this us versus them mentality. And so to me, it raises a question, if the courts simply codify as objective, whatever the perspective or common practice of the police is, aren't they essentially codifying in law or upholding through the use of law the us versus them? since those perspectives serve to create a sort of separate class of, of human beings, separate from the community, as you've described? Yeah, I mean, without question, I, I think in our laws and our police practices, we have codified the, the superiority of the police officer and, and that their truth is the truth. I mean, that's what I'm saying. It's even in academia where these bad ideas have continued to feed themselves not understanding that we're dealing with this entire false premise. And, you know, another one of those false premises is that civilians can't control us. That doesn't make any sense. So even if the, if, if the idea is that you don't have appointed, like under my system, you can't have appointed people, you can't have voted in people for that board, that opens the door for corruption that we already have. 
so you have to get them by a different method, a jury pool type of method. Mm. And that way you have randomly selected citizens who stand on the board. So think of a voluntary jury pool is essentially what you're talking about. And, and that would work. You'd be representative of the people. And, and when you do that, so we, we think that police only have the idea, like nobody can understand the dangers of a car stop, right? So if the car stop is so dangerous and the cops shoot somebody and your city council, or your, not your city council, but your city board, your civilian board decides like the officer was wrong for doing that, well, then what also comes with that is that we don't pull those cars over. So we make a decision as a community that it's not worth the risk to do that, so we're not even going to be putting our officers in that situation to begin with. So we're, it's like the police are afraid that they're being prosecuted or judged too heavily by the civilians for kicking down doors for weed. But the civilians, if the civilians are in charge, you're not going to be kicking in doors for weed because the problem isn't your judgment. The problem is kicking in doors for weed. Yeah, I, so let me ask about this because I think this is, in a lot of ways, the crux of the issue, you know, because I remember sitting in the courtroom when Officer William Porter was testifying in his own defense in his trial uh, in the death of Freddie Gray, and he talked about his first arrest, right? And he describes this foot chase where he's running after this suspect, and the suspect runs into a home, and he follows him in, and he and another officer, like, tackle the guy, and they finally kind of, like, get him under control and are able to arrest him. And then he's like, that was possession of marijuana, and I'm sitting there thinking like, okay, so you just asked this, I don't know, probably around like 24-year-old kid to chase down this person in a neighborhood that he works in, but he's not necessarily from, to go into a house that he doesn't know who's in there, who's on the other side of the door, uh, you know, wrestle this guy down. And what is this over? You know, a, a marijuana possession. Uh, and so we, you know, he describes what, you know, I think is fair to say a situation with a lot of objective risks, even if like those risks don't ultimately play out. And he had to do this because we have these laws against the possession of marijuana. And I don't know if as a society we're always, we're always fair about the fact that we do seem to ask things of the police that then when they sort of go inevitably the way that one would expect them to go, we then want to sort of moralize and get upset about from the society's perspective, are we speaking out of both sides of our mouths? Because I've certainly been in those neighborhood association meetings in places like Sandtown, Winchester, where the neighborhood association is demanding that the cops get tough, only to watch those same community association folks criticize the police when they feel like they've been too tough. So the paradigm in the question there is, is that somehow the citizenry has responsibility. And I completely shed that concept and, and dismiss it outright, when, especially when I'm dealing with other police professionals. Mm. And because that concept there is that people who aren't in the field are supposed to understand the field. And so the thing is, is that those people that are telling you that, they have the very same goals that I do, mm. right? It's just that I learned how to do them. And so it's my responsibility to educate on what things will be effective to achieve those goals. It's just that society has, has implanted in them that same idea. I mean, they're living in the same society as the rest of us, so they hear and are get the same message that the cops are the good guys and that you need to punish and put people in prison, and that's the way out. The thing is, that's not the way out. You just have to educate them so they know the right thing 
to say. I mean, and I think that's the role of, of police chiefs and, and police commanders to actually approach the field scientifically and explain it and make these arguments with the public so we can get on the right path. I mean, like all these conversations that I've had, I've gone to like Camden that nobody knew me and explained this stuff in the city and you understand it right away. I'm not, you're just not going to give me a room full of seven or more people that I can't explain this to and that how you don't really want to take that aggressive approach. You want to focus on the causes so that we prevent your victimization, not punish who victimized you, because that will never prevent your re-victimization, only other by that same person while that same person, when that, while that person's prison. That's the only means of protecting you. But then when he gets out, then he's even more dangerous than when he went in. So I'm trying to keep you from being victimized, and there's other ways to do that. This way doesn't work. And they would immediately understand and look at that evidence, and they would move on to, to pushing for different issues. So I think they're, they're essentially a victim of the anti-intellectualism and power structure that we've given to police and society as a whole. How much of this do you think is... Let me just ask this final question because we're running out of time for this episode. But how much of this do you think is informed by the fact that the police are oftentimes themselves in a lot of ways political pawns, right? Uh, if, if if the crime rate is X and it's an election year, you know, there are a lot of people who are going to be calling on them to sort of address what is at that point a political crisis, right? It might not even be a sort of crisis actually on the ground in terms of like things are actually getting worse, right? It could be a sort of short-term spike that is happening, uh, as, you know, that as these things sort of occur from time to time. But inevitably, you know, there's going to be political pressure on police to address things, and that's going to be informed uh, in part by those streams that you mentioned, you know, our need for punishment, things like that. And, you know, but at the same time, you know, we also use police as a sort of a target when we feel like we can score points politically and and then point at them and say, oh, well, you know, you guys messed up. You're the bad guys, blah, 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 blah. You're abusive. Yeah, they're, com- they're complete pawns. And so, you know, so so how do we reform it so that the police chief can actually be a voice that says, look, I understand why you want punishment and punitive action, but our mission is actually to keep you safe and how we do that best is X, Y, Z. Right. So that's part of what the civilian-led model that I, I've developed circumvents. So if we put that police board, that, that CEO to board type relationship, and you circumvent the politicians, there's no more politics to be played out. So that four-year term and the political agendas, of course, have helped contribute to this short-term mentality. And the sh- whenever, remember, whenever you're in the short-term mentality, you can use force to lower crime numbers. You Definitely, can. Yeah. It's just temporary. So we keep putting ourselves into this temporary band-aid situation because of that short-term po- of political uh, goals having an influence. But when we circumvent them and we do our, our board and the chief is like a CEO serving the board, then we can finally start addressing long-term issues, which is the biggest one that we have to get into, which is lead poisoning, which is my true passion, because it's the number one correlate to violent crime. And the one and the reason we're not fighting it is because of the short four-year goals, because lead poisoning abatement has a 20-year payoff in reduction of violent crime. So if you're in a system that at most has eight-year goals, then you're never going to reach a 20-year goal. That's the most important one.